In Leviticus chapter 11 and verse 44, we read these words. For I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and ye shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall ye defile yourselves with any manner of creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. For I am the Lord that bringeth you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Ye shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. And then turn to Romans chapter 12. where I want to read just the first two verses, Romans 12. Familiar words, I'm sure, to many of you. Where Paul writes, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Amen. We know that the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. We've been looking at various doctrines from God's word with the aim of bridging the gap between hearing and doing the word. We are called upon, we're discovering that, aren't we, along the way. Just what an emphasis in Scripture is placed on not being hearers only, but doers of the word. There is, unfortunately, a large gap in the lives of many professing Christians between what they hear and how they live. And this is a problem, I'm afraid, of widespread proportions. More than what we may realize. And how far does that kind of phenomenon exist even in our own lives? It presents to us the challenge, doesn't it, of bridging the gap between hearing and doing. Thus far we have... Uh, made this application, bridging the gap to the doctrine of Scripture. We've also applied it to the doctrine of God, theology proper, if you will. How do you do God? And you may recall I tried to draw a careful distinction between knowing about God and actually knowing God. That's how that gap is bridged. You know him, and not just about him. And there are many that know all about him, that may be very uh, orthodox, even in what they'll give assent to, uh, and yet are strangers to him, nevertheless. In our last study, we considered the doctrine of holiness. And that's what I want to return to uh, this morning. We drew from a text in Hebrews. Last time I pointed out how essential holiness, holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. So this is certainly one of those virtues in the Christian life 
that can be categorized as an essential virtue. You won't see God without it, just as you won't enter into the kingdom of God apart from righteousness. Accept your righteousness, exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. You shall in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven, our Lord said. Which raises then a challenging question, where am I going to get that righteousness? Especially if all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, how can I possibly meet the qualification for the kingdom of heaven? And thank God the answer is to be found in the gospel. The answer is to be found in the imputed righteousness of Christ that comes to us fully and freely to those that see their need of it and receive it by faith. To those who fail to see their need of it, I wouldn't want to be in their shoes on judgment day. As if the Lord says, I have nothing to say to you. We'll see you on Judgment Day, and you'll be held to the perfect standard of the law, and we'll see how well your righteousness measures up, keeping in mind that it applies not merely to your external behavior, but it also applies internally to your thoughts, to your words, to your motives. It all has to be in perfect conformity uh, to God's law as Christ certainly illustrated in his Sermon on the Mount. Now today, in this study of holiness, I'm going to do something a little bit different. I, I'm, I've been making reference to a book along the way, written by Paul Tripp, uh, the book, Do You Believe? And this book was written with the aim of bridging the gap between hearing, and doing. And I'm going to borrow a lot from Paul Tripp today. I'm giving him credit right now. Basically, this will be his sermon, okay, uh, to a great degree. I don't want to simply read a lot of quotes, although I am going to do that, but I am going to, as the Lord enables, uh, interact with these quotes. But um, uh, lest any book get uh, wrong ideas about me committing plagiarism. I want to, at the outset, uh, give credit where credit is due. And so much of my material, but the bulk of my material, is coming from that book. And I might just say here that there aren't many books that I could read that I would be comfortable even attempting this with. Um, I don't know if it's my age that is creeping up on me, that uh, is making reading harder these days, maybe than what it was when I was younger. Uh, it takes a really good book these days just to hold my attention, okay? But to find one that I would utilize, like what I'm going to do now, uh, puts that book in an even different category. Uh, basically, I have to look at a book and conclude, I could not possibly say that any better or any clearer or any fuller. Uh, I want him to speak. And um, this book has impacted me that way. And so I'm taking the liberty to draw from it um, quite a bit in our study this morning. Now, we read those verses earlier from Luke 11. Verses 44 and 45, let me read those again. 
for I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore sanctify yourselves. And I think I have probably pointed out that the word sanctify, a similar root as the word holy, holy and sanctify, uh, basically, basically two forms of the same word, especially in the Greek. Of course, I'm mindful this is Hebrew, but in the Greek, uh, very similar and from the same root. So you shall therefore sanctify yourselves and ye shall be holy for I am holy. Now let me pause here just to point out that when we think of the attributes of God, theologians usually uh, distinguish them by one of two categories. There are those attributes of God that are referred to as the incommunicable attributes of God. These are characteristics of God that you and I could never possess, could never be. For example, God is eternal. You and I are not. Now it is true that we gain eternal life through the gospel by the grace of God. So I guess you could say that in a subordinate sense we are eternal, but certainly not in the sense that our existence transcends time the way God's does. God has no beginning. God has no ending. That is an attribute of him that cannot be communicated to creatures. Another example would be the infinitude of God. He is infinite. And usually when we think of God being infinite, we think of it in terms of how immense he is. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. There is no place you can escape the presence of God. Read the 139th Psalm in connection with that, and uh, you'll see the various places designated. And there is no escape from God. He transcends time and he transcends space. These are incommunicable attributes. The other classification of God's attributes are those that are communicable. Or in other words, certain attributes of God that he communicates to his creatures, to his men. And this takes into account the fact that when he created man, he created him in his own image. Which means then that there were certain communicable attributes of God that he did impart to man in his uh, original creation. And it is into this category especially that holiness fits the mold. It is, I suppose you could argue in a sense, it's an incommunicable attribute of God and that God is holy in a sense that you and I could never be. But on the other hand, and this is what is communicated by the text in Leviticus 11, for I am the Lord your God, ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and ye shall be holy, for I am holy. Here, especially, are we called on to imitate God in this attribute, and the pathway to imitating God is what is in view by sanctifying ourselves. Okay, ye shall be holy, for I am holy, Neither shall ye defile yourselves with any manner of creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, 
For I am the Lord that bringeth you up out of the land of Egypt. And if you care to draw the spiritual analogy out of that truth of the Lord bringing up his people out of Egypt, you could say this corresponds to our salvation. The Lord, spiritually speaking, has delivered us from the Egypt, Egypt basically standing for this world. We are saved, as Paul expresses it to the Galatians, from this present evil world. Okay? And it is because he is the Lord, our God, that we pursue holiness. We sometimes get wrong ideas about the law, I think, and I know I've made this statement a number of times in the past, that when you read even the Ten Commandments, it's rather amazing to discover how much grace you can find in those commandments. I am the Lord thy God. The very preface to it. What grace is that? That we can call this God our God. Would he have us? Would he take us to himself? Would he even want anything to do with us, given our sinful condition? Well, not only would he take us, does he desire us, but that desire is expressed in the form of a command. Thou shalt have no other gods beside me. Boy, if you can't see the heart of God wanting you to be his in that command, uh, you're not reading it right. So, for I am the Lord that bringeth you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Ye shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. The other passage we just read was from Romans chapter 12. Familiar verses, I trust, they ought to be. Where Paul writes, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Now, take note of that word, therefore. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Uh, commentators are divided on what the therefore uh, is making reference to. Some would take it to make reference to what immediately precedes in the 11th chapter of Romans. Still others, and I would put myself into this category, I would take it to mean uh, referring to everything that Paul has elaborated up to this point. Up to this point in his epistle to the Romans, he has expounded the gospel. He has shown how mankind, Jew and Gentile, are all guilty under whatever law they've received, whether it be the revealed will of God which came to the Jews, or whether it be the law of conscience which the Gentiles possessed, all men are universally guilty. They have broken that law, whether it's the law of conscience or the revealed law in his word, which means then we are all in need of a Savior, and God has, pre has sent forth that Savior. We are saved by his grace. And when you come in Romans to chapter 3 and verse 21, it's kind of a hinge on which the whole epistle turns. After establishing the universal guilt of all men, Paul then elaborates on the glorious truth of what Christ has done by being a propitiation, a wrath appeaser, if you will, 
who appeased the wrath of God, satisfied justice for us, brought us into his family. He saved us, justified us by faith. The appeal now in Romans 12 is to all of that. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Uh, you might interpret it by saying, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the gospel of Jesus Christ, which reveals in such uh, immense measure the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And you know, if you've been born from above, if you've been regenerated by the Spirit of God, uh, you won't help but be able to acknowledge this is indeed very reasonable. I owe him everything. He saved my soul from the condemnation I deserve. I owe him everything. Everything I am, everything I have, it all belongs to him and Lord, if you would do that for me, oh, I most willingly and desirously present myself to you. A living sacrifice, my reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, okay? Here is a good statement, I think, pertaining to holiness in terms of what it's contrasted to. Pursue holiness don't be conformed to the world. Conformity to the world is the opposite of holiness, okay? And when I speak of holiness now, uh, I'm conscious of a twofold sense in which the Bible presents it. Holiness depicts God as being separate, separate from his entire creation. We don't uh, follow... Uh, the pantheistic school of thought, which says God is in everything. Every tree, every flower, every critter, everything. God is in it all. Well, no, he's not. He's holy. Which means that though he is the creator of everything, he is nevertheless distinct from his creation. He's separate. And you can argue by way of practical application he expects us to be separate from this present evil world. So that's one way in which holiness is described. The other way, uh, perhaps the more common way, is to think of holiness in terms of uh, God's essential purity. Without blemish, without spot, totally pure, ethical holiness, we could call that. Okay, and that's what we are striving for. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, you probably know, I think I touched on this in our last study. Uh, I know that I touched on 1 Peter, the text in 1 Peter that quotes Leviticus 11.44. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. That makes this permeating, doesn't it? All manner of conversation. And you are aware, or if you're not, I'll remind you that the word conversation is one of those King James words that had a fuller meaning in its day than the word conversation 
has today. When we think of conversation, we think of two or more people entering into dialogue with each other. Conversation, as a King James word, uh, makes reference to our behavior overall, our conduct, if you will. Be ye holy in all manner of conduct. If you would want to make a marginal note or a mental note, that when you see that word conversation, just think of the term conduct. Because it is written, Peter goes on, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. What a powerful exhortation, uh, and yet one that can be misunderstood as well. Pass the time of your sojourning. That's reference to this life. We've been in Sunday school. We've been studying Pilgrim's Progress. Um, what is Christian on? He's on a pilgrimage. He is sojourning from this life to the next. So, uh, your sojourning is reference to your walk in this life. Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Now, Peter is not meaning to say there, be afraid as you tiptoe through this world. You know, uh, be careful because it's very scary out there. Uh, no. Uh, when he makes reference to fear in this text, He's making reference to the fear of the Lord. Um, awesome reverence is what you should think of when you think of the fear of the Lord. Okay? And this is the beginning. You know, a number of times in Proverbs and in the Psalms, we are told the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you know nothing of this reverential awe, which is basically a revelation of the character of God, especially his holiness, if you know nothing of that and you're not moved to awesome reverence by that, you haven't even stepped up to the starting line in your sojourn, if you will. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. Okay, now, Paul Tripp recognizes how holiness speaks to us of the very essence of God. Let me read to you now a little bit of what he writes. Everything God thinks, desires, speaks, and does is utterly holy in every way. He is holy in every attribute and every action. He is holy in justice. He is holy in love. He is holy in mercy. He is holy in power. He is holy in sovereignty, holy in wisdom, holy in patience, holy in his anger. He is holy in his grace, holy in his faithfulness, holy in his compassion. He concludes the paragraph and this one is a little hard to grasp, but he says he is even holy in his holiness. Whatever that means. <laughs> okay, try to get your mind around that. But you get the thrust of what he's saying. And all of this can be borne out by Scripture. 
the number of references you can find in which God's attributes are listed and that adjective holy accompanies that attribute. Uh, a good exercise for you if you have a digital concordance or a regular concordance, just trace that word and see how many attributes of God are connected to that word holy. It may surprise you. He then, Paul Tripp, that is, goes on to describe holiness from a negative perspective in terms of what things couldn't exist apart from his holiness. Again, he notes, without the holiness of God, there would be no moral law to which every human being is responsible. Without the holiness of God, there would be no divine anger with sin. Without the holiness of God, there would be no perfect son sent as an acceptable sacrifice for sin. Without the holiness of God, there would have been no vindication of the resurrection. Without the holiness of God, there would be no final defeat of sin and Satan. Without the holiness of God, there would be no hope of a new heaven and earth where holiness will reign over us and in us forever. The biblical story would not be the biblical story if it were not written and controlled at every point by one who is holy all the time and in every way. Well, this is a pretty important doctrine then, isn't it? He recognizes then how holiness needs to permeate the life of the Christian. You could call this, I suppose, a commentary on what I just read a moment ago, past the time of your sojourning here in fear. He asks a good question, a searching question. Listen to it. What does it mean to live every day in the situations and locations of your life in a constant recognition of the holiness of God? Oh, this is going to be pretty practical now, isn't it? Uh, we're getting outside of this building now, aren't we? This takes us beyond Sunday church to everything you do during the course of the week, the mundane activities that you are engaged in day by day. What does it mean to live every day? in a constant recognition of the holiness of God. What does it look like to let this doctrine form the important places in your life, such as friendships, career, marriage, parenting, sexuality, finances, civic life, education, leisure, entertainment, and church life? Oh, you mean holiness applies to all those areas of my life, it's exactly what it means. What does it mean to let this truth capture your heart and in so doing, shape your deepest longings, your most influential motivations, the way you make decisions, the things you say, the actions you take? What does it look like to carry this truth out of the halls of formal theology and into the private places where the drama of your life unfolds. What a challenge. And he recognizes that this is indeed a challenge. I really appreciate Dr. Tripp in this. Listen to what he says. 
But here's what makes me sad. I don't always live with God's holiness in view. I don't always look at everything else in life from the height of that perspective. And when I don't, not only do other things seem bigger and more impressive than they are, but even unholy things can get my attention. My, what a challenge, and how true it is. Oh, may we as Christians, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, reconciled to God through Christ, saved from sin's condemnation and sin's dominion, may we rise to the challenge of being holy as our God and our Savior and God's Spirit are holy. He then gives his readers a list of ways in which holiness should affect the life of a Christian. He lists eight or nine, I forget what the number is, eight or nine different ways. Uh, I'm not going to even attempt to cover those. In fact, I'm going to reduce them to two. Some of his points, I think, are subordinate to previous points. So I think we'll cover a lot even in considering two. Two areas in which holiness should affect our lives. One, the holiness of God is to be at the center of how you make sense of life. How you interpret life. I think another way to put this, maybe a better way, would be your worldview should be governed by your perception of God's holiness. Your worldview. What is a worldview? Basically, it's how you see everything. Um, I had the privilege a few years ago, kind of a blessing to think on it these days, how, who were my students? It was Caleb, it was Justin Miller, and uh, Zachary Barnes maybe was the other one, that I, I had the opportunity to teach a worldview class as I was uh, an assistant in homeschooling for that session, and uh, a blessing to do. But what we did in the beginning of that class, and I remember this, I had people bring in glasses, you wear glasses, bring them. Bring in your sunglasses. Bring in every kind of uh, glasses you can think of. And we had various kinds of glasses, including a donation from Russell Yance, which was a welder's mask, which uh, if you look through the lens in a welder's mask, uh, you can hardly see anything. And we noted uh, just how different things look as you switch the lenses, you know. My James Elliott, I'm... Swear that kid was blind. <laughs> the lenses in that kid's glasses were remarkable. Uh, but at any rate, you know, the point being that your worldview is made up of the lens that you're looking through to see everything. Everything outside of yourself, everything within yourself. That's your worldview. And the point that Dr. Chip is making is that holiness uh, should be governed by, uh, or your worldview should be governed by God's holiness. It should be at the center of how you make sense of life itself. Dr. Tripp says, I'm not talking here about your more formal religious life. I'm talking about the reality 
that the way you live your life is formed by what you have concluded is true. The holiness of God must be at the center of what you have concluded to be true, or you will not understand the universe properly. You won't understand your own life. You won't live the way you were designed to live without holiness being at the center. He quotes then, and I'll, I'll read these to you uh, again. This is certainly a key passage on holiness. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And if you go on to read in that chapter, you have the description of how the posts of the doors shook and how Isaiah was just filled with a sense of dread and woe. Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Isaiah was a man of God. Isaiah was a prophet. But you see what kind of impact holiness when you're confronted with it as it's revealed by God? You see the impact that has on you? We read Revelation chapter 1 in our Bible reading this morning. Um, you don't find holiness mentioned or you don't find the word holy or holiness in that description, but that is certainly a revelation of Jesus Christ in his holiness. His hair white as wool, his eyes as flaming fire, his feet as burnished brass burning in the furnace. And what impact did that have on the Apostle John? He fell at his feet like a dead man. Even the Apostle John, the beloved disciple, the holiness of God, if it's perceived in the heart, it will have that kind of impact. And this is why I say there's a connection with holiness and the fear of God. Here's what Dr. Chip says about these verses in Isaiah. This amazing scene, with its incalculable glory, must be at the epicenter of how you understand everything. Without this, it is impossible to understand anything in your life correctly. Every good thing ever created has existed because on the throne of the universe sits one who is holy in every way all of the time. Your sense of identity, meaning and purpose, your goals for your life, what you long for, for your loved ones, how you used your energy, time, and money, your sense of right and wrong, your means of making decisions, how you used your gifts and abilities, and where you look for peace and rest must be connected to this declaration. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. He goes on, the holiness of God should frighten you, while at the same time, it should give you rest. I love that statement. 
And we've got to see holiness in both lights. It should frighten you, while at the same time it gives you rest. It should both blow your mind and form the basis of how you make sense of everything. It should expose the darkest parts of you while leading you into the light and hope of life. It should stop you in your tracks with awe and wonder and provide the tracks for your life to run on. It should confront you with the distance between what you are and what God is while making you want to draw near to him. While God's holiness exposes your moral weakness, it should also make you run toward his grace. The holiness of God should expose all the pseudo-glories that fight for your heart while revealing to you the only glory that is truly glorious enough to hook your life to. God's holiness is your light in the dark, your GPS when you feel lost, your comfort in the face of the evils of this fallen world, the constant reminder of who you are and what you need, and the place you run when everywhere else has proven inadequate. It is impossible to overstate the significance of the fact that God is holy, holy, holy. Here is the problem, though, that you and I face every day. The culture around us, along with the systems and institutions of that culture, has abandoned the category of holiness. You see, when you deny that this God, the Holy One, exists, then you do not sense a need for holiness of any kind. You never hear politicians, educators, social media influencers, cultural critics, or entertainment icons use this category. It has no purpose or meaning to them. Much of what you read, hear, watch, and interact with as a citizen in this present world will not reinforce for you how essential holiness is. And the more your culture influences the way you think, the less holiness will have any practical, functional purpose in your life as well. It is possible to believe in the holiness of God, and yet in your daily life practice holy less living. Oh, what a heart-searching challenge Paul Tripp puts to us, and yet so very true. And I think uh, each one here, if we're honest, we can uh, affirm the truth of it, the reality of it. I let the culture of this world have sway over me. It's not going to lead me to be more holy, to be more Christ-like. This truth might not become a way of thinking that then becomes a shaping influence on everything in your life. It is possible, for instance, to include the holiness of God in your theological outline while forgetting that it's the reason why God's instructions for your marriage are paramount. You can embrace this truth intellectually and still not be brokenhearted that most of the people you encounter know nothing about the glory of this Holy One and live as rebels against his will and his glory. 
You can sing of God's holiness in a worship service while not connecting it to the way you treat your children in the car on the way home. You can study God's holiness and then succumb to anxiety that forgets that the Lord of lords who is in control is good in every way. Oh, may God help us then to formulate a worldview in which the holiness of God is front and center. The lens through which we view things. May we live our lives in the fear of the Lord, a fear that creates in us a dread for sin and a love for Christ, a fear that instills in us a deep sense of humility that accompanies thanksgiving. I've always been struck by the text in Psalm 2 that kind of sets apart Christian joy from worldly joy. It's this admonition that occurs near the end of the psalm in verse 11, where we are admonished, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. You ever heard that expression? Where do you see that anyway? Rejoice with trembling. How do you do that? Can I actually rejoice in the Lord while I'm trembling in his holy presence? The answer is yes, you can, and yes, you should. Serve him in that way. And that's why I said, and I'm pretty sure I brought this out in our last study, that we've got to be impacted uh, by holiness, uh, not just in uh, the terrifying aspect of it, but we need to be drawn to it as well because of the beauty of it. There is a beauty in holiness. There is a beauty in the life of Christ, who is perhaps the most tangible example of holiness that we'll find. And when we recognize his saving purpose, it enables us then to approach a holy God with trembling, but not with a trembling that dominates us, but a trembling rather that is tempered into this reverential awe, which means then that it's also tempered with deep humility. A Christian who understands the holiness of God will certainly be a humble Christian, won't he? Secondly, okay, I'm jumping ahead now in Paul Tripp's book. This is actually his fourth point. For me, it will be my second and final point. And it is this, that the holiness of God is meant to be the ultimate quest of our lives. The holiness of God is meant to be the ultimate quest of our lives. The section begins with some more heart-searching questions. Listen to them and examine your own heart. What are you living for? What do you want in life? Hunger for what drives you? What gives you an unshakable sense of purpose? What keeps you working, pressing on, and continuing? What things do you value more than anything else? What is the big reason behind everything you do? Why do you do what you do in the way that you do it? 
Why do you do what you do as a friend, a student, a worker, a boss, a parent, a spouse, a neighbor, citizen, or member of the body of Christ? What in the world are you running after? The Apostle Peter is addressing people who were suffering for their faith, making reference now to his first epistle. But surprisingly, Peter's letter is not first a letter of comfort, but rather one filled with marching orders to scattered believers. Peter is laying out what it means to live as a believer in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what you're facing and what human powers are in control. Early in his letter, Peter delineates the core of what it means to live in light of the gospel in this fallen world between the already and the not yet. And here's the quote from 1 Peter 1, verses 13 to 19. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, past the time of your sojourning here in fear, for as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot." Rather than living as one controlled by the self-oriented passions of your former life, Peter says you are called not only to obey the Lord, but to quest to be holy as he is holy. This call is to be your highest value, your constant commitment, the ultimate long-term quest of your life, Peter is so bold as to call people to what is impossible apart from their being rescued and empowered by the grace of the Holy One they are called to imitate. Between your conversion and your homegoing, the focus of God's redeeming work is on radical personal transformation. Therefore, when you quest to be holy as God is holy, you are committing yourself to make God's purpose for you your purpose. His purpose for you and for me is to be holy. That needs to be then my aim, my quest, my goal, my ambition. Rather than living as one controlled by the self-oriented passions of your former life, Peter says you are called not only to obey the Lord, but to quest to be holy as he is holy. This call, as I say, your highest value, constant commitment, ultimate long-term quest. He notes again, between your conversion and your homegoing, 
The focus of God's redeeming work is on radical personal transformation. Therefore, when you quest to be holy as God is holy, you are committing yourself to make God's purpose for you your purpose. It is important to understand that you have not simply been saved for heaven, but you have been saved for holiness as well. We cannot ignore God's call or allow ourselves to lower his standards. In the glory of his holiness, he is the standard for everything we think, desire, say, and do. My fear, Trip notes, and this is a well-placed fear, one I'm sure we share with him, my fear is that in our pleasure-obsessed world, where comfort is king and temporary personal happiness is the definition of the good life, this quest of quests will get lost in the endless din of our cravings for the next amusement. The highest human joys are found when we take seriously God's call to a life committed to holiness and when the commitment is applied to the situations and relationships of our daily lives. Now all the practical implications of this call to holiness are impossible for every one of us. I have no ability to transform my heart. I have no independent ability to escape the sin that still lives in me. I have no autonomous power to harness my thoughts and desires. I have just as much ability to be holy as God is holy as I have to jump high enough to touch the top of the Empire State Building. So this high and holy calling is an argument not only for our desperate need for right here, right now grace, but also for the humbling fact that we will never be grace graduates. We'll never get beyond grace. Our need for it is constant. Thank God it's always there. Reminded again of that text, the familiar one. Maybe one of the first verses a Christian learns to memorize and apply. 1 John 1, 9. For if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This makes the pursuit of holiness something doable, something practical. Not that we will have perfect success. Obviously we won't, but we go to God again and again and again for forgiveness. And what that text indicates to us is he will always, always, always forgive. And why? Because he's just and he's faithful. Not only because it's a gracious thing for him to do, but it's the righteous thing for him to do on account of what his son has done in shedding his blood for our sins. So here is something that we can pursue uh, without the dread of it or the seeming impossibility of it crushing us to despair. Till our final day, we will be reaching out for holiness and crying out for the grace that alone has the power to produce holiness in us. May we love being holy in God's eyes 
more than we love all the self-oriented pleasures that tempt us to give our love elsewhere. May we bask in the blessings that result when we make God's purpose for us the purpose of our hearts. Let me read you his conclusion now. This brief study of the holiness of God should leave us weeping and rejoicing at the same time. If you stand before the throne of our perfectly holy God, you will have reason for both. I am persuaded this is why we are called to both of these responses in Scripture and why they are both important pieces of a spiritually healthy life. God's Word calls us to mourn, actually pronouncing blessing on those who do. In the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. How could you stand before the holiness of God and not weep at the condition of your own heart and the sin everywhere in your world? God's word also calls us to rejoice. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18 When we gaze upon the holiness of God, we have reason to rejoice. How unshakable is your joy when you wake up each day knowing that your world is under the rule of one who is perfectly holy in every way, all of the time, and that this holy one is your Father by the grace of God. So weep, your Lord is holy. Don't stop rejoicing, your Lord is holy. Live the life of a sad celebrant. Mourn the ways that you are far from the holy goal God has set for you while you rejoice in the potential you now have to be what you could have never dreamed of being if this holy one had not met you with his heart and life-transforming grace. May your tears mix with joy until you are on the other side with him and like him forever and ever. I'll close simply on this note. Paul Tripp as an author and as a preacher, I think I share something, a little something in common with him. And he expresses this in the course of these chapters. He laments what he uh, takes to be his own inability to communicate holiness to people. That can only be done by God's Spirit. And that's why we need to pray. Pray for spiritual illumination. Pray not only that you can master the theology propositions from Scripture that pertain to holiness, but pray that the reality of truth will reach your heart. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. A lot of people are looking to the Holy Spirit for the wrong things. This is the right thing. And the thing that He will do, He will grant spiritual illumination when we seek him for it. Look at the prayers of Paul uh, in his epistle to the Ephesians. One is in chapter 1, the other is in chapter 3. I think they're both uh, largely the same, uh, which are prayers for spiritual illumination. May God grant it to us so that we live not only with the truth in our heads, but we bridge the gap as it's ministered to our hearts by God's Spirit, and that sets us 
on the quest then for holiness. Well, let's close then in prayer. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we have to acknowledge that the things that we have attempted to contemplate today really are quite beyond us. And yet, Lord, you have revealed yourself in your word in ways that we can comprehend. Help us, therefore, to appreciate the glorious truth that thou art holy. And may the reality of it permeate our hearts so that we do serve thee and rejoice with trembling and walk humbly with thee and ever endeavor with thy help to live more and more unto thee in the quest for holiness and to not be conformed to this present world. So hear our prayers now in Jesus' name. Amen.